Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. My husband and I became grandparents right before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, I will never forget not holding the second baby until she was two and a half months old. They are a huge blessing in our lives and we are very thankful that now we are able to be a big part of their lives, but still being careful. We take so much for granted as we face more restrictions again. In this way, we are so looking forward to being past all of this. I started working at a bike shop at the beginning of the pandemic. I've worked retail in the past, but never anything that is as crazy busy as what bike shops have been over the last couple of years. The demand went through the roof, and we're now looking at people come in and say, oh, I'm looking at a bike, and if we've got one in stock, we're telling them, you better buy it now if this is the bike you want, because if you don't, it might not be here when you come back, and it could be two to three years before we get another bike like that again. I guess it's good for business in some senses, but it's a a stressful environment for retail workers. As far as work, I tried working from home initially, and while I like being able to wear perfume and slippers to work each day, and my office assistant was a little white Westie dog at my feet, Going to the office feels better. I need the support of my colleagues and I like seeing them. My client work has shifted mostly to online and phone work. Many have suffered in mental health and addictions, we all know this, and many have shown remarkable strength and flexibility and adaptiveness. There's no question we're all weary, clients and staff. It's a weird dynamic to be living through one of the best times of my life, while also one of the most difficult for so many of us. I've gotten engaged, bought a home, and married the love of my life all during a global pandemic. At the same time, I've watched so many people I love suffer through stress and uncertainty, and I've experienced those emotions myself too. I haven't figured out how to reconcile such different emotions. I just live with them, celebrate the highs, and mourn the lows and live. One day we'll look back on all of this and think, wasn't that quite the time? We've come to see that a pandemic is more of an era than it is an event or an incident. This episode of Rector's Cupboard might be thought of as an audio time capsule. We'll be hearing from people about living through the pandemic and thinking about how these reflections might sound years from now, when the pandemic is more of a memory than it is a day-to-day circumstance. Here's why we want to do this, for healing. The word healing has to do with more than physical ailment or illness. It's more than the healing of an individual. Every one of us, all of us, need to know healing after a time like this, and our healing is connected to one another. My family and I all had COVID over the Christmas holidays. It was actually quite brutal, far from mild, but we're mostly recovered and grateful. 
healing from the pandemic is greater still than this. Our hope for all of you listening is that you will know this kind of healing, that you'll hold on to that hope and that you might be part of the healing for other people and for our world. Thanks for listening, and we hope that you will identify with some of the voices that you hear as they reflect on this past two years. I have to wear a mask. I can't touch my friends. I It's been much harder than I wanted it to be. I'm feeling really stressed that we are going to catch COVID. I'm just really scared that it's gonna like, really affect our family. I've learned that it's very important to stay safe to protect people. And they aren't just you and like your family, like to protect everyone. And I've also learned that it's okay to feel scared. And I know that a lot of people are there to help me when I get like scared and nervous and like stressed about COVID. In the middle of the pandemic, I hit a bit of a milestone. 20 years at the same company. but it didn't feel very celebratory because most of our team was still on furlough and a lot of people were, were let go. Our venues were still dark. Um, there were no sports games, there were no concerts. Um, it didn't feel like much of a celebration. In the fall, we thought everything was coming back. There were hockey games, there were concerts. We were so busy, um, busier than ever with like 70% less people, fewer resources. Um, But then Christmas hit and it shut down again and the venues are closed and hockey games aren't happening. This time does feel different though. Um, The United States is still continuing and we have a vaccine and we don't think it's gonna last as long this time. So um, we're all just really looking forward to there being live events and concerts and big crowds and fans filling arenas and stadiums. Jumped in an Uber the other day, coming home from the airport. The driver said to me, people are so angry these days. No one talks nicely to each other. And began a reflection on the impact of the pandemic, on the way in which we relate human being to human being. Driver said to me, it's almost like we forgot our humanity. There's a sense in which we are so desperate and longing for a deep sense of joy. And yet I wonder if at this stage of the pandemic, what's changed is we are ultimately seeing the end of human agency. We have come to the end of our rope and we know that we need God desperately. Ultimately, the sovereignty of God is what we place our trust in. Divine agency is what saves us, not our human work. News of the pandemic in our part of the world and many others came first with stories from long-term care centers. 
The virus had found its way into these places and people were dying, and none of us knew just where this was all headed. I spoke with Ken Bell, who works in long-term care, about this and about the early days of the pandemic. But we're here today to talk about, I don't know, kind of surviving COVID, whatever that means. But I don't mean like if you have COVID and surviving it, uh, more um, what's it going to mean to come out of this time in history. Um, and kind of the general malaise people can can feel. My family and I got COVID and it was pretty bad. Um, it hit us pretty hard. Still feeling it just a little, little bit. Um, yeah, you sound you sound a little congested. Yeah, it, it was something that was, that's the remnants is kind of the congestion. But, but Ken Bell is with us. Ken Bell is Cupboard Master on Rector's Cupboard Podcast. Uh, Ken also works in long-term care. Um, yeah, yeah particularly with the elderly. And Ken and his wife, Sonia, have two kids, both high school age. And so, Ken, I thought we would just spend a few minutes talking about um, what it's been like to live during this time. Sure. Um, I mean, it, it's so cliched. I never anticipated that I'd live during a pandemic. Did you? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I thought about it as a as a possibility, just because I've read enough books on, you know, Hot Zone and some of those other books, yeah. the coming oh, yeah. plague and what that would be like, but I don't. A little think more Ebola-like. They were a little more Ebola-like, so I don't know that I ever imagined no that we would actually live through a pandemic. I remember feeling that at the beginning that, uh, <laughs> not that you count this as a point of privilege, but most people who've ever lived in history have not lived through a time like this. I mean, there have been multiple pandemics. Sure, the Black but, Plague and the yeah, flu. But, but most people live their lives, let's say 80 years or 75 years, 95 years or whatever, and live manage to live that period of time without living this kind of thing. So right away, the, the history that we live in and have been living is exceptional. Um, what were your first memories of knowing that something bad might be happening? I mean, I think I remember back just a little over two years ago, end of December, beginning of January, two years ago, beginning to hear something about uh, a new virus coming out of uh, China. And, you know, it's something that they're looking at. It might be a flu-like thing. So I remember that. And then I remember, I don't remember the exact date, but I remember when um, they announced that there was an outbreak at the local long-term care home in Lynn Valley. Oh yeah. So that's quite a stretch of time in between. Like, and so I do remember, and you know, then you get news stories, right? I was away in Tofino by myself at my sister-in-law's place, um, working on a few things. And at that, that was January, I guess. And I think um, so we haven't checked all this. Maybe our memory's faulty, right? Like lots of people, but I think that was the time Kobe Bryant died in a, in a helicopter crash and the news, cause I remember like logging in and seeing that that had happened and there was this thing going on in China. Okay. Um, and then it was probably, I don't know what it was, 10 days, a week later, two weeks later, in so that you, you and a few of us were in Tofino at the same place. That's right. I was just, I was just trying to remember when we're, when we were at Tofino. Yeah, you're right. We were talking about it then and we were beginning to think, you know, how might this impact us a little bit and all that sort of stuff. So it is a few weeks later, because I think that was like 
early March, wasn't it? I think something like that. Something like that. Yeah. And then we were driving back quite a drive and a ferry ride and stuff and talking about in the car, five of us crammed in this car and talking about what if this becomes more of a thing. Right. Yeah. And at that point, and then we went to that Coombs market. It was just crammed full of people. Do you remember that? Oh, I do. It, that place is always, always full though of people. But yes, I remember. Crammed full of people and already the pandemic was arriving. Yeah. Um, but nobody had any sense, at least around where we live, that things would be would be shutting down. Yeah. Yeah. It was March. You know, we had conversations going back and forth about um, how might how might this impact us? How long will it last? And then, of course, the next thing we hit was we were going to do a podcast. We were heading out to the winery uh, in Langley. Yeah, we did it. We recorded two out there. But it was on that it was on that car ride out where we heard uh, the prime minister announce yeah, a lockdown. We now want to have people stay home. And we were halfway out there. We were having a decision. Do we continue going for it? We decided to go for it. And one of our guests showed up, but the other one didn't. And yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I don't know. That might have been, I don't know if that was administrative or what that was, but I do definitely remember that. And then remember getting like A&W food on the way home or something and yeah. deciding we were like not going to go into the restaurant and eat. And so we sat in the car and I remember thinking at that point, um, well, we might not be seeing a lot of each other for two, three, maybe even up to six weeks. Yeah. That's kind of the time frame I had in my mind. Was yours similar? I think so. Like I thought, you know, because it was just arriving in Canada. It was just expanding. And I thought it could be a few weeks, maybe a couple months. Um, and I remember too early on saying, I mean, it was probably a few months, a little bit of time after that, a couple months after that, maybe where we began to think, okay, well, this could go on for like a year or 18 months. And I remember being sort of, mm. I don't quite understand how they could lock down the economy for that long. I remember yeah. thinking the same thing. You know, Jane, thinking, okay, you could yeah. do it for a few weeks, but for longer than that, it's going to really crush people, which it has. You remember those news reports from China, like Wuhan and surrounding area where they locked down? Yeah. And they had like loudspeakers and all kinds of stuff going on. And I remember saying to Jen, we were watching the news one night. So this is before the lockdown here. But we commented to each other like, that would never happen here. Right. You couldn't lock down. You can't lock down here because people will just not follow those rules or they'll yeah. do what they want. And that's been one of the interesting things to me is that it turns out you, you can lock things down here. You can. And for the most part, people have gone along with it. They've been upset. They've expressed how it's hurting them. They've expressed how they think some of the restrictions are unfair, unclear, inconsistent. But by and large, most Canadians have gone along with it. They've been obedient. They've listened to political leaders and health leaders and gone along with it. And do you remember then we did like um, Zoom social hours and stuff for a while? Oh, yeah. That was fun for a time. <laughs> it, it, right? Okay, what cocktail do you have tonight? Yeah, what are you drinking? And you're in your, your, you know, blanket um, uh, tent. Made a blanket up. fort. Remember, some of us had blanket forts. Yeah, you can, so you can hear better on, the, on Zoom and stuff and... And that that was okay. And then those just kind of waned where where it was. Uh, do you have any particular memories, like a, 
a couch you sat on and watched some part of the news or in those early days? Um, I spend a lot of time, I think on my sitting on my bed doing zoom calls. Cause it was, yeah. it was, uh, just more comfortable and warmer up there. And there are, um, Wi-Fi feed was better upstairs. So a lot of time there. I was also unemployed at the beginning of it all. So I'm sitting there thinking, okay, great. I'm unemployed. A bunch of other people are becoming unemployed. This is not going to make the search for a job. Well, and you're not qualifying for the assistance and stuff then. Yeah, I, I wasn't qualifying for assistance because I was all, I was unemployed pre-COVID. Uh, so that was interesting, but of course out of it, uh, and I don't know if we'll get into this, I, well, I guess we will to an extent, I did get a job and I got a job in an area where I hadn't really thought a lot about, had some experience in, and doing spiritual care. I had applied for some jobs in spiritual care at hospitals and tried to get in at a, uh, prison and a, um, mental, mental health facility and ended up getting a job in long-term care and uh doing where, COVID, where COVID has hit the hardest where COVID has really hit the hardest and fortunately you've, you've been relatively unscathed in the couple of places you've worked right yeah so I've worked in two of them and both of them at least until this week have been largely unaffected that is now changing <laughs> I, I went from knowing a couple of people who had COVID directly to in the last two weeks or three weeks, I guess since Christmas, since you guys got it, to I probably know 20 to 25 people yeah. directly who've had it. So, yeah. so is this how it's going to end? You're now put on your epidemiologist hat, which you're not an epidemiologist, but but everybody has felt, or most people have felt like they can, you know, offer their opinion. And from what you've heard, from what is is Omicron hopefully something that's going to move us towards endemic? I mean, that's what it that's what it sounds like from some of the uh, experts is say this is the way viruses tend to play out. They they move towards I mean, viruses want to continue to exist. That's their basic thing. And one of the ways you continue to exist is to become more contagious, but less deadly, less serious. You don't want to kill your host. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't want to kill the host. You just want to make them mildly ill so that they spread it to others. Um, I don't know how much of a thought process viruses actually go through in, <laughs> well, in planning that. It, it's their hidden agenda. Seems like they're um, pretty good at it. Yeah, yeah. So, in, and if enough people get it, of course, that in itself is a form of giving you additional immunity. So we should be hopefully moving out of it, unless, you know, another variant comes along. That's the wild card. Been, that has been one of the things we just mentioned early the weariness yeah that has been one of the things that i think for everybody i think most people have multiple times during this now two years thought that the end of this pandemic was near is that well, yeah i mean i remember last december and bonnie henry coming on and saying you know making the announcement that the the light is at the end of the tunnel, basically. The, the, the vaccines are here. We're going to be able to move towards a normal summer, was, was the claim from most of the yeah. uh, politicians. And it was normal-ish. Well, I mean, so was we, the first summer, kind of. Yeah. Summer yeah. 2020 and summer 2021. We, we went away on vacation both 
yeah. the summer, just for a week over to the island. And it was normal-ish, but it was still, people were still wearing masks. Some places still weren't open. Uh, you still saw those sort of things. Um, but we did hope. And then all of a sudden Delta came in and then after, De and I think this one in particular, it, it feels like being, you know, hit by a wave in the ocean, but also caught in a riptide at the same time. Yeah. I think that's sort of the feeling of this one is to this point, it's been wave after wave. And all of a sudden, I think Omicron in a way has also taken our legs out from under us because we, we really felt like we were making gains. The hospitalizations were going down. ICU numbers were going down. Uh, kids were now beginning to get vaccinated. Uh, it looked like everything. And then this one came in. It feels kind of like a riptide that's just it, taking it out. And quickly too, right? Like it was just before Christmas. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like no events, no things, no. Um, maybe a question then before we kind of move toward the end of this conversation to, to talk a little bit about your work. Um, the social aspect of this, I mean, it's medical as well, but uh Early on, there were these pronouncements that we're all in this together. I haven't heard that as much since the early days. And people were banging pots and pans for healthcare workers. And um, I, I'll, you know, to tip my hat to this, I, that's been one of the things that actually has caused weariness in me um, more than the pandemic itself is the, the kind of turmoil that's come socially. Mm. Uh, how have you reflected on that? Yeah, it's it's been a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, I think I think we have seen again. I think most people have done a good job. Most people were, you know, wearing masks in the grocery store even before it was mandated. Um, most people were pretty much following the rules, but we have had people who haven't and it's caused real tension between uh friends yeah. uh, between family members yeah. you know we've had some friends who uh either early on chose not to get vaccinated they waited a long time or still not choosing to get vaccinated um and it sort of it just taints the relationship it taints the connection and i think too is just we just haven't had a prolonged time. We, I think even when we, this past summer, when we were allowed to have people in the house and stuff like that, we were still sort of on this constantly being on edge, mm -hmm. always a little bit on our guard. And I think that's a really hard place to live in for two years, sort of con being in a constant state of caution and awareness and hesitancy um, because even when we were having people over, we still stayed outside longer than we normally would. So I think that whole thing and just going out for drinks with friends after work and that sort of thing, a lot of that has largely disappeared because we're most people are sort of still trying to limit the number of people they're seeing. So those smirk circles have gotten smaller. And I think for people who already had small circles, some of theirs disappeared because people... Oh, I don't know if you had any events at your house or like I'm thinking particularly social uh, where someone is asked not to attend something because they're not vaccinated. You've seen Yeah, this? we, we have made some decisions not to go to certain people's yeah. places because 
they or other people who were coming to the event weren't vaccinated. And so, you know, we made those decisions too, and we felt really bad for the people organizing the party. It's not their fault, but we just had but to that's make that. That's pretty interesting if, if, we, if, it, if and when it does, well, when it does move to endemic, what the residue of that will be. Because there will, there will come a time where that's not necessary anymore. Yeah. Where, no, you don't need to, to shut out people who are, who are not vaccinated. And it'll be interesting to see how some of the difficulties that have come up where they have, how those will come back down again, how and if and, and when. I think some relationships will probably be pretty permanently damaged. They may not be permanently broken, but I think this will this will lay a lot of damage to some people's relationships, especially in families. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, I think I, one of the first times I went out, um, so there were rituals at the beginning too, right? You and I shared this with some of our friends where each morning, I think it was like eight fifteen, we would watch. Um, oh yes. We'd watch uh, the, the prime minister do his daily talk show. Yeah. Come out of his house with the cameras set up there. His hair slowly getting longer and longer, the beard getting <laughs> more gruff. Longer. I remember thinking of like mid-March and there'd still be, it'd be like snowing there in Ontario. And you're thinking like... Oh, Mid-March, it was like mid-April and it was still... Yeah, it was... You still thought the snow piled up. And then at some point, I don't know how long did he do those? Six weeks or so at least. I think longer than that. But yeah, eventually it went to a couple of times a week and then it kind of disappeared even bonnie henry's updates went from daily to yeah uh, you know weekly they picked up again uh, i remember early on looking at the numbers almost every day oh yeah I, I used to do that and then now i do it maybe once a month i'll look at the numbers yeah, there the was numbers a are website. mostly meaningless at this point in a lot of ways. Well, and I remember for a while, because all the political stuff was going on, particularly in the United States, right? Yeah. And I, I remember saying to Jen early on, this is going to be an American story. Um, it, it makes no sense in terms of medicine, you know, the how, it, how advanced a country is technologically, everything else, how wealthy they are. There's zero reason why, you know, the highest percentage of people in a country that die are in the United States and, yeah. and that they top the list. Right. Um, so you look for other reasons. And of course, I think one of the reasons largely is political. So I remember I would log on to that site that you're talking about and you would just see that the American numbers here, like, are you kidding me? Like yeah. it is just going nuts down there. And that was something. And I remember the first time, one of the first times that I went out, it was with you. I think we went and had a beer down at wild eye. Yep. And there was that feeling of like, is this okay to do yeah. this? Are we, are we following to... all the rules? Like, are we supposed to keep the mask on while we're drinking the beer? <laughs> yeah. Your work, um, you mentioned early on that we started to hear, it's literally about, you know, less than a kilometer from, from where I'm sitting right now at my house, um, where some of the first cases in Canada came, which is the Lynn Valley Care Center. Yeah. Um, then it became obvious because we didn't know this would happen, right? That, oh, it's spreading like crazy through through care homes across the country, Ontario. And, and it's killing people. Like, I think they killing. lost, I think I think 10 people died at Lynn Valley. I could be off, but it was, it was. Oh yeah, in those early days, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and 
So then you wind up, as you're saying, you're unemployed when, when the whole thing starts, but you get a job and you work in one long-term care facility and then get a different job in another one. Um, how has it been for you? And also you have a, a father who lives in long-term care yourself. So there's a, there's yeah. at least three places you're very familiar with. Yeah. Um, what's that been like? I mean, I, we know from the news, but what's it like there every day? It's gone through, it's gone through waves. So when um, everything sort of locked down and they didn't have visitors coming in, every long-term care facility seemed to go with the rules, but there was enough freedom to have wide definition of how you were going to imply those rules. Where my dad is, they were way more um, strict, strict. Uh, than where I was, where I was working, where I was working at the time was way more concerned about, or prioritized, not concerned, but they prioritized the sort of social, emotional health of yeah. the residents. And they didn't have an outbreak. And they didn't have an outbreak. Yeah, fortunately, as I say, both places up until the last week or so uh, that I've been at have not had to deal with, with COVID and nor my dad's place either. I think they might have had one case over the course of the time up until recently. I don't know if they have any right now, but I would be surprised if there's a care home in BC that doesn't have some cases of COVID in them. No. Um, yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've we've talked about how you have to make the assumption that any given day, about 25% of your staff are walking around with COVID. They just don't know it. Yeah. That's just the, the reality. Um, so it's gone through different phases. There's been a lot of fear. There's been a lot of apprehension. There's been a lot of exhaustion. There's been a lot of people who have tried to do everything they can to bring joy and happiness and normalcy to these residents, some of whom don't understand entirely what's going on. Like my dad, he sometimes is aware that there's a virus out there, sometimes forgets about it. When you remind him about it, he goes, oh, that's right. Or that's still a thing. Eh? Yeah. You know, you're trying to keep everyone safe and healthy. You're trying to pay attention to their social and emotional well-being. We got back to having, um, you know, entertainers come in again and have larger gatherings for residents. Like for a while, we had sort of limited them to, you know, just a handful of people in a room at a time. We got to expand it. And it's been this sort of constant change. We, we've, we had one day that we were officially told you no longer have to wear masks if you don't wear them too. That lasted <laughs> one day. And that was, that was pretty recent then. Uh, it was in the summer, yeah. But it was like, and some of the staff were not comfortable. They wanted to keep their mask on. And so our place just said, yeah, look, if you want to keep your mask on, totally fine. If you're doing up close personal care, probably not a bad idea to have your mask, but you don't have to. And I think that lasted about 36 hours. Wow. And then we had to go back to, no, we do have to wear masks. So it has constantly felt sort of like one step forward, one and a half steps back at times. And, but right now, um, like I'm spending most of my time at work right now, or a good portion of it with staff members and listening to them, having them cry, they're worried about bringing it home to their family. They're, they're exhausted because they're working uh, overtime. They're working double shifts. They're, they're working way beyond the capacity of what people should 
be required to work. And yet they're saying, for the sake of the residents, I'll come in and work another shift. Okay, so-and-so is off work because of COVID. I'll pick up their shifts. Um, so there's incredible, just the human effort and sacrifice that's going on there is incredible, but it's also exhausting for them and for family members coming in. You know, families, they're always changing. It, it's always changing for them. We, we, we went to window visits for a long time where you had to sort of, yell at the person on the other side of the class when the other person is you know deaf or hard of hearing oh, yeah. it doesn't matter so how hard how loud you yell through no. windows who's that out there <laughs> why yeah. are you screaming and then and then we, we we went through a phase of putting the visors the, the sort of plastic blast shields between residents and visitors and you couldn't touch for the longest i remember at the care home when we found out when we told visitors you can actually touch your loved one you can give them a hug. I had one family member, when I told them that, they just stared at me for a moment and just started bawling. Because for five months, they hadn't been able to touch their love. So many things were, were the long-term implications of these kinds of things is going to be interesting and not not always easy. I remember thinking that, you know, first time I go to a hockey game or first time I go to a concert or something, I'm going to feel really overwhelmed and really kind of like, um, but I have since I went to one hockey game and I, I didn't feel overwhelmed with joy. I, I, but it just, it's, it was interesting how quickly normal came back. Mm. Um, and then literally within a week, they, they shut them all down again. Right. From, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, and I, you also have mentioned off, off the top that you have, kids in high school, two kids in yeah. high school. Um, it's a question that I've seen in some publications. I'm not talking about any far right publications or anything like that, more mainstream or even center left type publications asking, starting to ask the questions of like, what, what are we going to look back and how are we going to think looking back? And one of the people said that they think we're going to do some kind of analysis of how young people paid a really, really high price in order to keep older people alive. I mean, these are, yeah. these are things and to protect the hospitals, but that the cost to young people is real. Yeah. How do you feel about some of that given your, you have kids of your own? Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think they, they gave up a lot in a way that they also couldn't adjust to some of the things. So some people, like I have a friend who's a, psychologist and so he was able to adjust pretty quickly to seeing his pa patients online or his clients online and so it was different it was it was a change it was not an insignificant change but they could, he could continue doing his work mm -hmm. young people i mean the things that they've had to give up especially um i mean my daughter's going to graduate this year and i remember going to the first the first year that this ha that, that this was going on in the first year 2020 yeah, the first grad that was going to be affected by it, there was a, they ended up doing a uh, car rally sort of grad. Yeah, so the car everybody waves. Drove by every, people from the community, and it was really neat. Like people from the community who had no kids in school, probably hadn't had kids in school for decades, came out and they sat on the chairs and they watched these grads go up and down and applaud for them because at least it was something. And then they did it again this year. And I remember sitting there talking to people and not as many people were out, but we sort of said, yeah, this is probably going to be the last year of doing that. Yeah. And now already, um, 
my daughter, they were supposed to have a grad semi-formal uh, next week, and that's now been pushed. Hasn't been yeah, like the winter before. formal or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but band trips. You know, both okay. my son and daughter were supposed to go on big band trips, and uh, to somewhere else in the world. My daughter was going to go to Estonia, and it's gone. And those opportunities won't come back. I think even of the social aspect, right? Um, yeah. Because that's. You know, I did enjoy high school also from the academic, uh, but certainly from the social. And yeah. for for many, arguably, that's that's you know as important or more important is the kind sure. of, and you're just not using social media to to really get to know people. Right. I mean, there's some there's some communities where that is happening in some way, some gaming communities or whatever else. But for young people, they they meet people face to face. Uh, yeah. They and two years without that, yeah, in some really formative years is is a huge sacrifice. The questions of like, is it worth this or is it worth that? Those are those are in a way impossible to figure out. I think what's important is naming that people we don't often necessarily think of like that gave up a lot. Yeah, there was a price that was paid by. A lot of people. And uh, I mean, my two kids, like, like yours, are, are, you know, different from each other. My daughter's more of an extrovert, really gets her energy by hanging out with her friends and stuff yeah. like that. So she paid a certain cost in, in not being able to do that. Um, my son, on the other hand, is more of an introvert, but he be, the price he paid was he became even more introverted. Yeah. So the handful of friends that he did hang out with, all that connection really yeah. disappeared and so i wonder what the implications are going to be long term for how we build so how this generation builds social bonds in the future how are they because one of the things that happens when you hang out together is there's physical touch going two years without that or with that feeling like it's a risk yeah um, i think could have long-term implications for how do they build relationships in the future yeah, you and I both are in, you know, areas of, as you, you say, spiritual care and, and, you know, some kind of, <laughs> maybe strange to say, but some kind of influence of people, even if it's smaller group or whatever, looking to us for, for some kind of like direction, even hope or, yes. and I think, you know, we're mindful of that. I, I'm grateful for you and people like you that uh, the world, our community, our, our particular community, and then the next circle out, the next circle out, we're going to continue to need help in terms of what it means to relate to one another, what it means to be grateful, to, mm -hmm. to move past a time like this, to realize that we're never fully past it in terms of our emotional health, our mental health, our spiritual health. Yeah. Um, but also to be, to, to lead with that gratitude for the gift that human interaction is Yeah. for what we're going to get back to. I look and think, obviously none of us will ever forget these two years or two and a half years or yeah. you know lord willing in the creek don't rise um not much longer yeah but uh we won't forget it but i'm looking forward to those days that they would happen more frequently where where the gratitude overwhelms the weariness yeah and uh, our prayers for hospital workers and stuff i also hold this you know the, the theme of like protect the hospitals maybe we should you know, I think that means more than just, you know, trying to limit the number of people being sent there. <laughs> Maybe it means yeah. something different um, and something more than that. 
we we will get through this. We can see this now. Thanks, Ken. Thanks a lot. You know something that I, I really miss? I miss seeing people's facial expressions because as nurses, our job is a communicator. And when you can't see people's face and sometimes have difficulty hearing their words because of the mask, I miss that. I've learned a new skill and it's about reading people through their eyes because that's really all we see now. And so I look at eyes just above the mask, through the shields, through the goggles, and sometimes yes, in some of those newer nurses, I see a little bit of fear, I see a bit of hesitation, and then in some of those other eyes, I see understanding. And I see there is a feeling of real connectedness, that we're in it together, and we are a team. And, um, and I'm grateful for being able to work here at Lionsgate and, um, and have that collaboration. I was retired for six or seven years before the pandemic struck, so that things for me didn't change that much. Mask wearing and social distancing were not very intrusive for me. What saddens me has been the upheaval for people in my former work environment and that of others. My work involved almost entirely meeting with people, most of them strangers, many while knocking on doors, seeking information on witnesses, etc. Naturally, due to the pandemic, these practices were prohibited by health authorities and my former colleagues and friends have suffered greatly and financially as a result. These observations represent little change for me, but for thousands of people and families, these changes are catastrophic and sad. Someone said to me recently when they discovered that I was a pastor, oh wow, you must be really busy these days. And I thought to myself, it's true. On the one hand, I, I am stretched pretty thin. But on the other hand, pastorally, things have been pretty quiet. No one is calling. No one is emailing or texting, not nearly as much as they used to. I notice that people are turning inward. They are all cocooning. Everyone is so self-protective. Uh, we're all pretending to be independent um, introverts right now and I I hope that will change. I wonder if it will. I have been in a long distance relationship in COVID, which has been almost two years of it. I wouldn't recommend it. Over three years we've had three and a half months and another two and a half months without seeing each other in person. Our differences in philosophies about rules and regulations have been at times a huge source of conflict. At times, um, we've simply had to stop discussing it and take it right off the table in order to keep peace and stay together. In the province of BC, in Canada, where we record Rector's Cupboard, elementary schools and high schools mostly remained open during the pandemic. There were closures from March of 2020 through May of 2020. And then more recently, as Omicron, the Omicron variant arrived, there was a one-week extension of the Christmas break. It was not, however, business as usual. I spoke with Kim Whaley, who's an educator and a teacher, 
Kim has spent much of her career working in educational assistance with students who have extensive needs or learning challenges. Kim has a particular perspective on how the pandemic affected education, how it affected teachers, students, and administrators. So Kim, why don't you just uh, tell me a little bit about how and why, I guess a little bit of why, you got into teaching in the first place? Well, ever since I was a kid, I've always wanted to work in schools. Um, I wanted to be the person who was helping kids who are struggling. I can remember sitting at the kitchen table with my dad, helping him mark tests that he gave his students. He'd give me all the multiple choice and all the true false, and I'd sit and mark with him for hours on end, and he would do all the short answer stuff. He taught grades seven, eight, and nine science. Um, so every time he had a, they had tests, I would end up marking it. I also went with him every August before school started to help set up his classroom, really to change the paper on his bulletin boards for him. <laughs> and then I'd get to go and explore all the cool specimens he had in jars all around his classroom for biology. So we'd have little animals and little things. And so how old are you at this time? Uh, like you're in school yourself six or seven on, like right. I would sit and do this. So you have two perspectives. You have the perspective of your dad being a teacher, but you yourself are also a student. Yes. Right. So the, it, it uh, so, so for you, it's been kind of a like family legacy type of thing as well. Yeah. There's many people in my family. My uncle was also a geography teacher. My cousin got into it. My mom was actually a teacher for a oh. while. So very and ingrained in my family. And you saw early on, clearly from probably the example of your dad and others, that this was a profession that mattered and you could see that it helped people. And that was part of your connection is what you're saying. Yes. So now in, you know, in this pandemic, what are some of the ongoing, like, or so I would say even before the pandemic, let's go not pandemic related. What are, what were some of the main ongoing challenges around teaching and childhood education? Some of the main were always funding, providing adequate support and supplies um, for your students. I know most of my teacher colleagues and even support staff colleagues spend money out of their own pockets for, to buy for, extra things for the kids. Like resources and stuff. Yeah, resources. We spend hours beyond our time that we're technically paid for. As a teacher, I'm salaried, so it's not as different. But as a support staff, because I was a support staff for 20, almost 20 years, I would spend time outside of my hours of school preparing for my kids, making things for my kids, just so they would have adequate access to all of those things. And some of the, uh, like when you say using their own money to, to provide resources and to, from what I've heard, some of that would be pretty basic resources. So this isn't necessarily things that are like the extra mile. No, often it's paper or like mm -hmm. if I wanted, I did a project last year where I went and bought paper to make paper roller coasters for my kids because the school doesn't carry the thicker cardboard type stock. So I and, went and, and you can't go and ask, you can't go and say, I need this. Can you get it for me? You can. We do have a small fund every year, but it doesn't cover the cost of everything. Right. So if that's the case before the pandemic, how, you know, that and other ways, how has the pandemic impacted 
public school elementary education then in your experience? For me, it's more of a services for the kids the pandemic has impacted. Um, the mental health component of the kids. Mm. Um, there's a true lack of funding for the most vulnerable kids we see in service, whether it's meal programs, um, mental health support with school counselors. I work at a very high needs inner city school and we see our school counselor twice a week. And the caseloads are so high that within that demographic, that she can barely see all the kids on her caseload each week. And that is, so that was kind of bad before and it's worse now. Yeah. Cause there's more kids who have a need for those extra supports yeah. because you see the anxiety rising in the kids. And, but you have like living where we do in British Columbia and Canada, because each jurisdiction has been different, right? Like, there's parts of our country where the schools have been largely closed. That has not necessarily been the case here. So while you're in the midst of all these challenges and real like limitations, there must also have been kind of a sense of as bad as it is here, it's worse other places. Have you kind of, how have you kind of found your way through that type of thinking? Well, as you said, we've had a very different experience here in BC compared to a lot of other places across the country. Um, I have a number of family members who are teachers and support staff who work in other provinces who've had multiple closures, lots of online teaching over the last two years. We were only officially online for two months. How was that for you? That... It was hard, um, but we were told to focus only on English language arts and math and not worry about all the other subjects for the kids. So really like narrow the perspective. Reading, writing, and math. That was it. <laughs> and it like from from my, so as you know, Jen is, is um, an EA educational assistant. And so she was doing stuff online too, the couple of months that closed and the schools were closed here and you hear this in news reports across the country and other places it's almost like the online stuff was like the worst like closures were better than online stuff is did you experience some of that or can you identify with some of that even though you didn't have to do it for that long we all cringe every time they talk about closing or going back online even just over the christmas holidays with the new omicron variant they talked about us potentially being back online. We were all told we had a week off. The kids had a week off the first week back after Christmas. Yeah, so like an extra week. We were expected to set up an online classroom in case we need to go back to Um, online learning. So So you do that, correct? So it's prepared, it's there. I can post things. I can have team meetings. It's a Zoom type platform, a little more detailed. And you just hope um, you won't have to use it. I pray really hard I never have to use it, as do pretty much all of my colleagues. It was super stressful. You never stopped working. Because of like people that I know and people I'm related to, I see how hard that was on teachers and educators. Um it must've been hard on the kids too, or did they adapt more readily to the online stuff? Or do you know? 
What's your sense? Um, it was very mixed. Some kids were really good mm. and they would attend your daily meetings, weekly meetings, whatever it is you had set up to meet with the kids where you could read stories, they do a response. Um, I work in primary primarily, so great. It mine's a three, four. Okay. And so you could share a story on your screen. They could write a response to it and they'd post it and hand it in. Um, you could do a math lesson with them very easily. My kids didn't have their math books at home. Okay. The first time. So we just kind of used an online platform that we had free access to during the first shutdown. And so you'd assign certain concepts for the kids to work on. And then I could monitor it from my end, how they were doing, and then do lessons on different concepts and then have them go practice them online. So if you have a, a student, a, a child, a kid who is, who struggles to focus at the best of times, I can imagine that online, it's going to be virtually impossible for them to focus. For some kids, it was actually easier. Really? They find it easier to stare at a screen ah. than they would to look at a book or listen to a lesson on the carpet and not, they were more engaged, some of them, not all of them. Right. That's interesting you say that. That's that's curious to think that way. So some adapted fairly well. They also had to adapt to like masks and cohorts and, you know, staggered recess times in some cases. And do you think kids adapted generally quite well, maybe even easier than adults did? Or what's your sense there? Uh, the kids in my school did really well adapting to all of those changes. Um, with the cohorts, we were paired up with another class. So there was two full classes and all of the staff and you were allowed to mingle with those two classes. So my school at recess and lunch, those two classes were in a specific area on the playground and wow. they couldn't go anywhere else really so mondays was at the primary playground tuesdays was at the covered area wednesdays was at the tire swing area thursdays was the intermediate playground and fridays they hated because it was out on the gravel field so you had your like uh your schedule of play and the kids knew it really well and they knew where they had to be every yeah. day they knew they weren't allowed to go anywhere else so this was for most of that year all uh, of last year all of last year what about like emotionally some kids you you mentioned some kids have struggles like obviously pre-pandemic um did you pick up were you able to read like that some kids just emotionally just couldn't handle this or they were afraid you know, maybe they were afraid of the pandemic or the virus or whatever. Was there some of that? Or was there it was some of that. And I got the sense it came from the adults in their lives. Uh, so some kids were stayed online and at home through part and some of them all of last year. So they didn't attend school from March of 2019 till September of 2021. March of 2020. Yeah, 2020. So till all the way through. So they didn't finish 2020 because the the closure was March. Yeah, the closure was 2020, yes. And then right. they didn't attend school for March, April, May, June. And then off for the summer. Yeah. And then they didn't attend school for the whole school year last year. Wow. 
and then came back to school in September of 2021. So socially, that just has to have cost. That's where the kids struggled, um, um, is the social aspect. And even through last year, we had, in my cohort, a confirmed case of COVID. And so notices went out. Certain kids had to isolate for two weeks. Two weeks back then, yeah. And then those one of the kids I can think of particularly, always, I hate school. I hate being here. <laughs> I had never seen him so happy to be at school and comply to all of the COVID protocols as he was after he had been stuck in his house with no friends, no social aspect for two weeks. You just noticed this difference. There was a huge difference when he came back to school the first day. He wanted to be there. He was willing to learn, ready to learn, ready to be with his friends. Wow. It was like night and day for this one kid. I like that you say that, that that was where you noticed the biggest impact was on the social aspect. And it's interesting, you know, the implications, what that means. And that's likely the same for adults. Um, what this has meant for how we relate to one another, right? So with that in mind, um, this is a bit closer to, you know, how it's affecting adults and in, in education. Um, so how has the pandemic, like in, in your experience, how have you seen it or felt it impacting staff, administration, relationship between staff members? Um, and I would imagine there's positive and negative there, but how have you felt that? I think the administration carried a lot of the burden, still does to this day, hmm. making decisions and sharing information they get with the staff about the changes in the protocols that change regularly <laughs> as they get them. Sometimes we get them on the news, just like everybody else does. And then they have to say, yeah, that's actually true. And then we have to follow through and they have to make sure that our specific school campus is meeting the changes in the provincial guidelines for schools. I would imagine that they, like any administrative role like that, there's just no possible way they could even please most of the people. Not at all. Yeah. So you've got parents, you've got students, you've got teachers, you've got support workers, and they're instituting new policies and, you know, imposing restrictions and then lifting restrictions, changing rules. They, they just must have people in their ear constantly. It's not a job I would want. <laughs> Do you think there's going to be, this is more just your like speculation. Do you think there's going to be kind of a longer term cost to that like is this is this going to linger that you know or or will or are you kind of a little bit more hopeful that when the pandemic ends we'll get back to the other fairly quickly in the school setting i think once we can lift those restrictions of constantly washing your hands walking down the hall on one side (laughs) going in and out of this door only for your class once we go back, lift all of that, I think the anxiety levels around the school will decrease. You just have this feeling that people are going to need some time off, but unable to take it. There's no off time till June. Yeah, till, till the breaks, till the, till yeah. the 
prescribed off times. Um, what about our staff edgier with one another or generally, you know, has it, has it been more we're all in this together? It doesn't feel like we're all in this together because we're forced to stay apart. Yeah. Our staff rooms are closed. Okay. Our meetings are all on Zoom. My school never changed that. Would, they would, were reinstated the do your staff meetings and everything on Zoom after Christmas, but we have done them all of this year as well. Oh, you just stayed in we the- just, Yeah. Um, we have a number of staff who are very anxious about COVID and how it could impact their lives at home if they were to catch COVID at school. So they stay in their rooms, you eat your lunch in your room, you don't interact with many staff. Wow. In a lot of ways, it's been super isolating. So the, the kind of like um, general, you know, stereotypical, you see like sitcoms and whatever else, like the, the school staff room is just not a thing. There are three tables in our staff room and three people, four people total can be in the room at one point. Yeah. Th so three people eating. Somebody getting their food ready or something. Yeah. Yeah. And they can't interact really. No. <laughs> I mean, for some people, I guess that'd be welcome. <laughs> you know, and like, there's yeah. strict cleaning protocols. When you're done, you need to use the spray and clean your area. Like it's, it's almost too much work to go to the staff room. So you go to your car or something. I just sit in my classroom, right. but as, as a teacher, I can do that. As a support staff, it's even harder. Right. Cause you don't have your space. They don't have their space, but they also don't take their breaks at the normal lunch hour when all the kids are outside. Cause they're supervising the kids. Right. So they eat before the lunch break or after or recess. And so they can't be sitting in somebody's classroom having their break while teaching is happening in the classroom. Wow. So they have to find, I know one of the support staff that works in my room actually goes and has her lunch in her car just for some quiet, peace and quiet yeah, I, time. I, I think one of the most interesting questions to me, and I think we can kind of speculate about it right now and, and, and talk about some of the actual things that have happened, like there's evidence. But one of the most interesting things to me is when we look back on this time, will we come to realize that a lot of the price that was paid, now obviously the people who died were mostly older people or people who had existing health problems and, and we should do what we can to, to not, you know, protect our hospitals and protect those people. But I think it's becoming more and more clear as well that young people, and I sometimes think of like, people older than the kids you're teaching, but we could think of them as well, that young people have borne a lot of the burden of, of this pandemic era and, and, you know, paid a lot of the price socially, as you say, education has just not been the same for two years. And so there's a cost with that. How do you think through that? Like you look at these kids and you, and you think, okay, these kids, because you've now had kids that have done two years with you in this pandemic that's a significant part of elementary school right yeah and so you must look at those kids and think like there are some things they won't get back they they sacrificed for the greater good how do you feel about that it's hard sometimes 
because hmm. as a teacher, I want to provide as much as I can for these kids, as many experiences as I can. Hmm. And I find it, you can't do that. I haven't been able to take my kids on any field trips. Of course. And as an inner city school, a lot of these kids don't have access to those activities with their families. It's just not something they can do. So we arrange for grants, we arrange for free field trips to get them out and experience those things that they wouldn't normally have the opportunity to. And there's been none of that. And there's been absolutely none of that. And even this year, we're not really allowed to do field trips. Wow. And so you're, and you're working with children who they're, they're so young that they don't really even necessarily have a memory of field trips and those kinds of things, you know, intramurals or what, you know, extracurricular things. And they don't even necessarily have a memory of that being normal. This is normal now. This would be their normal school experience. And so you kind of lament that loss. It's, yeah, I think that's going to be, you know, two years, five years, 10 years when we look back and think who, who bore the brunt. And of course there's frontline workers and all the rest, but, but socially demographically um, because like imagine somebody in junior high or senior high, like you don't get those years back. Those years have now been lived. Yeah. And, and those years that meant all these other things to everybody who's ever lived them before, or most people, um, they didn't mean those to you. And so you experience that with the younger kids. There's probably greater resiliency there for them. Um, so that's maybe that's why I feel it more for the, like the teenagers and stuff that, uh, that, you know, some of us look back on our high school years and think, those, those are pretty formative years and there's so much that's been given up in a time like this. Right. Having said all of that, a um, little more hopeful questions to end. Uh, in what ways are you able to say that you're glad you're a teacher in a time like this? I'm glad to be able to provide a stable environment for my students. That's awesome. Um, give them space they can come be safe as possible learn have fun with their friends it's really taught me as a relatively new teacher the importance of being flexible with my day and that sometimes the academics don't really matter mm. it's making those connections with my students and the connections they make with each other meeting them where they're at on any given day and moving forward together. I really focused on building community within my classroom the last two years. It's been much more of a focus for me because that's who they get to see and who they get to hang out with on a you're daily a basis. You're, a con you're one of the main constants in their, in their life, especially. Yes. I mean, that's always so true. Especially it's now. all about building that community within our classroom to care for each other and take care of each other. I mean, you can imagine it. Like we look back and it's usually an influential teacher. We don't remember all of our teachers, of course, right? But I think back to, you know, whether it's grade one or three or whatever, and, or seven, you know, grade seven, who my teacher was. And, and you know that for the most part, 
these children as they become adults will remember the teacher they had during the pandemic, right? Like that's just a, a something that will be imprinted on on the kind of psyche of, of people who've lived through this. Um, so the last question I have is, how do you think we'll carry an appreciation and will it last for the everyday when this pandemic ends? Like, can you picture yourself on the field, you know, or, you know, in a classroom, whatever it is, and not having any of those restrictions, not having to chase kids down to follow all these rules um, and just kind of soaking it all in and being like, I'm so thankful that it's not that anymore. Yes. Um, <laughs> I have brief glimpses of it. When I take my students outside and we take our masks off because we're outside doing an activity and you just, you take that mask off and you just take a breath of fresh air. And it's like, I remember what this was like and I can't wait to get back to that. Yeah. There are days where it's just like, I'm tired of the routine of wash your hands, put your mask over your nose and not having that as, part of my vocabulary I never thought as a teacher I'd say oh I see a naked nose <laughs> is that what you say and the kids <laughs> they laughed it made them laugh yeah, and <laughs> they pulled their mask up oh that's so, so I'd be, we'd be yeah. standing in line to leave our classroom because at that point we weren't allowed to go in the halls without our masks on and so in our classroom, it was okay, but the hallways were not because it was more of a common area. Right. And I, I'd stand at the front of the line, look back and go, I'm doing a naked nose check. And two or three kids had instantly pulled their masks up over their nose. Well, just they laugh at the word naked. That's, that's funny and enough. They would laugh at the word naked all the time. <laughs> yeah. Never in my life did I figure as a teacher, I would ask about naked noses in front of my grade threes and fours. Oh, Kim. Well, you know, blessings up for you and what you do and who you represent, teachers in general, and, and blessings in like the that call to kind of, you know, be patient with one another, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we're, you know, part of what we're working on here with putting together this little episode is we really are hoping, and this has been like, you know, the fourth time at least that we felt this that we can begin to see an end to this. And so we'll hold that image of uh, you, you know, taking off that mask outside and, and getting a deep breath and just thinking not only like what this used to be, but what this will be again. And, uh, and so, you know, we're not there yet, but uh, um, you hopefully know, getting closer, <laughs> hopefully getting closer. Hey, and you know, you've got, we're heading, yeah, we're only in January now, end of January. And so you kind of, do you do this? Do you still kind of go, I can't count on anything really changing fully this school year? Yeah, I have no real hope of many restrictions being lifted. Yeah, that's hope that that's hope that could hurt too much. You know, so you just are like, okay, I can adapt to this for this length of time and then see. So, but it would be even better if, if even before June, um, a lot of these things are lifted and, and there's a lot less fear of this thing going around. So thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Healing is a coming together, not a tearing apart. 
For many of us, one of the most troubling things around this pandemic has been more social than biological. The final reflection of this episode is from a doctor, a friend who works in intensive care. His words offer us hope for recognizing the humanity of all people and for moving towards the healing that we so much need. Blessings to you in the days and weeks ahead as you yourself reflect upon this time, what has been lost and what will be renewed. Thanks for listening. I'm a doctor, I work in intensive care, and one of the more challenging aspects of COVID care for us has been dealing with the social side of the societal splits over public health measures, vaccination and government response. Because more than most places, the ICU is where vaxxers and anti-vaxxers, science believers and science deniers literally come together, where increasingly exhausted staff bring the best that science can come up with to a patient population that, especially now, is mostly made up of those who reject the science that underpins the care. This irony is not lost on ICU nurses and staff who, as a group, are better known for their toughness and for their tolerance. But the flip side that's hopeful to see is how, in the crunch of it, the most overworked staff are mostly still very compassionate. Most patients and most families, for good outcome or bad, are very grateful. And vaxxers and anti-vaxxers look pretty much the same at the end of a ventilator circuit, not different from how any of our extended families would look. And empathy seems not so hard to find. I'm sure that when we leave the unit and go home, we're as short on patience and tolerance as anybody, maybe shorter. But for me, one of the good things that can come out of the unit, besides the COVID successes, is a bit of that empathy. Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday. The podcast is a production of Reflector Project. Hosts are Todd Weeb and Allison Williams. Cupboard master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell. Production and social media by Amanda Mina. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.